what I'd like to do today in the sermon this morning on the last great day is to give us seven truths that we can be very, very thankful for. Seven truths we can be thankful for in God's church. Now, some of these are, uh, they're, they're all very important. Some of them I'll, I'll spend a little more time on than others. You're going to get some quick little prophecy Bible studies in here, and we're going to dive deep in some of these points. You have to take notes, and we're going to move fast. Some of them we'll spend less time on. But these are seven profound truths that we can and should be thankful for. That should help us to rejoice at the feast, at all the feasts, but also throughout the year. Now, there are many other truths we could be thankful for, and I, you know, we can't cover them all. We can't cover them all. <clears throat> we're thankful for Christ's sacrifice. I'm not going to get into that today. But we're thankful for the shed blood of the creator of the heaven and, and the earth, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for our sins willingly. <clears throat> we're thankful for our families. We're thankful for... The, uh, the food we can eat. We're thankful for the fact that God allows us to see a color spectrum. I was talking to some people about that. Uh, just the fact that God lets us see a color spectrum. The beautiful blues, the beautiful greens. How many colors of blue have you seen in the ocean waters around Kauai? How many colors of blue have we seen in, in the flowers and the fragrances? God didn't have to give us all of those senses, but he did because he loves us and he wants us to rejoice and he wants us to be thankful. And of course, we know spiritually there's much more beyond that. I cannot wait to see the infrared spectrum. I cannot wait to sense things that are beyond the physical. And I know that you all understand that and look forward to that as well. <clears throat> the first truth the first thing we can be very, very thankful for is peace of mind. Peace of mind. <clears throat> I want to just spend a little bit of time on this first point. But regardless of what troubles we face, brethren, regardless of what waits for us back home, we can and should have peace of mind. I know that some of you, I was commenting to my wife and I said, <laughs> you know, I'm really enjoying Kauai this year. Uh, we've been twice before. And I remember one of the times I was here, I wasn't always a minister, and I remember one of the times I was here, I was the vice president for a company, a publicly traded company, and, um, and the, uh, the global uh, VP, I was the North America VP for sales, and the global VP called me, long story short, he said, come back, come back, and this was day three or four, and um, there was a large, large government sale, these are seven-figure uh, technology deals that was not going to close, and the company would not hit its numbers. We would not hit our numbers for the quarter. And essentially, he made it clear that either he or I were going to go. Either he or I were going to go. Because he wasn't going to take the blame. And it had been delegated down to directors and sales engineers and so forth. And it just wasn't time for that, that deal to close. So I lost my job here in Kauai uh, 10 or 12 years ago. I can't remember exactly what year that was. And that was a little bit stressful. You know what, though? In all sincerity, it was stressful, but God blessed us, rewarded us, took care of us, and I was able to rejoice even in that trial. We knew that, you know, if, if you're chastised by the world for doing good, for doing righteousness, you know God will take care of you. So I know that some of you have trials back home. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm not saying you don't have to pray and fast, but you can rejoice. And as we go through the sermon, you'll, you'll see why. But you can rejoice knowing that God loves you. God will take care of you. God does take care of you. Anyone who's fired for keeping God's holy days or the Sabbath, it's a blessing. 
I got a better job. It won't take time, but it's a blessing. Peace of mind. We do not have to fall victim to what Satan wants us to fall victim to, which is depression and anxiety if we're God's saints. I've looked up some stress statistics real quickly from 2017 American Psychological Association. Uh, reports these as the primary reasons that people are stressed in the world. Number one, 63% of Americans are stressed out because of the future of the nation. They're worried about the future of the nation. 63%. 62% of Americans are stressed because of money. Uh, 61% because of work. 57% because of the political environment. This is from 2017. It's probably worse now. The majority of your neighbors, the majority of Americans, the majority of people around the world are stressed. They don't have peace of mind. This study further uh, revealed that 77% of those people who reported being stressed, 77% of the people I just mentioned, are experiencing real physical symptoms, real health problems, real physical consequences because of that stress. Sickness. We, we don't have to succumb to that, brethren. <clears throat> Dr. Meredith wrote in one of the many wonderful booklets that he, he wrote, uh, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? He wrote the following, and it really ties into the last great day in the sermon today. <clears throat> he wrote the following, As many of our hopes and dreams in this human society begin to come crashing down, and we're seeing that a little bit beginning out there in the world, He said, we need to focus on the only real answer. And brethren, that's why you're here at the feast. That's why our brothers and sisters in the faith are keeping the feast of God, the feast of tabernacles before the Lord around the world, because they understand that the real answer, the real answer is God's plan and God's truth. And again, the fact that God has called us out of this world to worship him and to be different. So Dr. Meredith continues, the very real God of the Bible is the only answer for he will intervene within the lifetimes of most of you reading this booklet. And that very well may be the case. He continues, he will bring about a magnificent new world, tomorrow's world, an entire new society based on love, joy, and peace. Peace. God wants us to have peace. Let's turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Some of you will know where I'm going. But peace of mind... Peace for the planet is very important to God, to Jesus Christ. It's integral to his plan. And brethren, he wants us to have peace. He wants you and me to have peace of mind. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Very famous messianic prophecy, speaking of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child, speaking of Christ... Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We read that the government of God, the kingdom of God, will be established upon his shoulder. Uh, He is going to be king of kings, but he is also the foundation, the chief cornerstone. And his name will be called Wonderful. He's perfect and wonderful. Counselor, mighty God. This is the characteristic of the eternal, the characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. And Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. 
The kingdom of God will be one of peace. And we are pioneers in that kingdom today. God wants us to have peace of mind today. Read, read in verse 7, the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. There will be no end. God, in his government, will make no room for evil, for oppression. God's government will be one of peace. And it will extend forever. Now, I'm not just going to tell you, be warm and filled. I'm going to give you a few points here. Mr. Ames often writes about peace of mind. How many articles has he written about peace of mind and prayer? And how many telecasts has he given about peace of mind and keys to prayer? So I just selected one. I'd like to just read through seven points from one of Mr. Ames' articles. Quickly, points we can jot down. And what are one or two points that are following that you can apply the coming year. Maybe on the airplane ride back home, maybe one or two of these points, you can get out and go to the scripture and say, you know, I need to do better here. I need to apply this principle. The first point Mr. Ames gave from his article, Seven Keys for Peace of Mind, is, and I think very appropriately, take part in the Great Commission. We're going to talk about that later. Take part in the Great Commission. He gives a number of scriptures. Uh, Matthew 6, 33 is one scripture he gives. However, let's turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 18. So this is key number one for peace of mind. And we're turning to Matthew 28 and verse 18. We won't turn to uh, scriptures for each of these points. Just a few. So this is after Jesus' crucifixion, and he's been resurrected. And in verse 16 and 17, we read that the uh, the disciples went away into Galilee, uh, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Verse 17, uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now notice verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying... And so what was Jesus' instruction? What is recorded by God in Matthew... As the, the instruction that he gave his disciples, his church, upon, you know, after the resurrection and, and uh, at the beginning, very beginning of the, the New Testament church here. This is before um, Pentecost, but you, know, you understand what I'm saying. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He qualified to be that king of kings. He qualified. All authority has been given to him. Go, therefore, here's the command, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Now, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, and we do rightly, and Mr. Armstrong understood that, Mr. Weston understands that, Dr. Meredith understood that very well. We do rightfully uh, need to warn Jacob of the sword coming upon Jacob. We're going to talk about that later in the sermon. But he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's our priority. The more that our mind is on that, the more peace we'll have, because your mind is in the work. How many times did Mr. Armstrong tell us that? That our mind needs to be in the work and on the work. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. It's probably going to primarily be a witness, brethren. At this time, it's probably primarily going to be a witness. Uh, Mr. Weston and I, Mr. Ames, uh, all of us, you know, we are trying everything we can to figure out innovative ways to reach people. And we don't want to only reach people. We want to create disciples. We want to create disciples. And you, your prayers help that. And your tithes help that. Your conversations help that. 
But it might be that we're mostly doing a witness. But that doesn't mean that it's only a witness because we're commanded to also make disciples. And we will. And there's been growth in the church. A little more on that later. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I'm with you even to the end of the age. For those who say that the work died with Mr. Armstrong, shame. Even to the end of the age. And we're going to do that work till the end of the age. Key number one, take part in the Great Commission. Care about it. Pray about it. That should be a big part of your prayers and your focus. Number two, pray about your worries. I won't turn to key number two to have peace of mind. Again, you can read Mr. Ames's article, Seven Keys for Peace of Mind, if you'd like to study this further. But he gave uh, Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 to pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. <clears throat> Even if you're enduring trials, you can still be thankful. There's so many things to be thankful for. Our friends in the faith, our families, the work, the, the fact that you are still around and you can enjoy the sunset or the sunrise. Number three, very important, I think for our young people, very important for all of us. <clears throat> key number three for peace of mind. Seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. Again, I'm going very quickly through this. This is just the first uh, part of my sermon, but seek wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 1. We won't turn to it. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools are hard-headed. Sometimes I could be hard-headed, right? Seek counsel. You've heard the term an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Very true. Very true. Peace of mind. Seek wise counsel. You think something sounds like a good idea, but you're getting counsel from those that are older than you or maybe have had experience that you haven't had. And you decide, I'm not going to do that that way or I'm not going to do that at all. You may have saved yourself a lot of grief. Seek wise counsel. Number three, we won't turn to this scripture, but um, I'm sorry, number four, key number four for peace of mind. Don't neglect physical exercise. First uh, Timothy four, eight tells us that. You know, some exercise is good. Don't forget physical exercise. You know, I've noticed that if, if I've uh, stopped exercising, <clears throat> you just start feeling lethargic and you just don't feel as good. And uh, it's easy for us to get into that trap, right? We, you know, we work too many hours or some people, you know, wh- whatever, whatever your, your uh, crutch is, <clears throat> make sure you exercise. I, m- I mentioned Mr. McGowan at the beginning of the sermon. I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but I remember him walking. Uh, what was it? Three miles, three miles. Uh, almost every day, and uh, I, I loved him, and he, he was so positive, and he would walk three miles every day, up until old age. Positive man. Seek physical uh, ways to exercise. Number five, maintain a positive mind. You can jot down Proverbs 15, verse 13. You know, sometimes it's a choice, brethren. Proverbs 15, 13, maintain a positive mind. Sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes you have to rebuke the negative thoughts. Sometimes you just have to say, I choose to rise above the little offense or the little, you know, things aren't going perfect. I choose to rise above it. And I'm not saying every time you have a bad attitude, it's Satan, you know, literally attacking you or his demons literally sending those thoughts in your mind. It can be. Some, it can be if you let yourself get too negative. It can be. Uh, but I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, you know, you're, you're, you know, things aren't going well. You didn't quite get enough sleep. And, um, you know, you just say, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to have a negative approach about this I'm going to be positive okay key number six let's turn to this scripture count your blessings let's turn to first thessalonians five 
1 Thessalonians 5. This is key number 6 regarding having peace of mind. And we're turning to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. It's a familiar scripture, but I'd like to draw our attention to something here. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice always, verse 17, pray without ceasing, verse 18, in everything give thanks. I want to pause there. This requires conscious effort. This requires active thinking. Rejoice always, but you're not just going through life just sort of daffy, right? It's conscious thinking. It's active thinking. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. In everything you see and do, in every way that God blesses you each day, give thanks. You make it to the grocery store in one piece without getting run over by one of these crazy people on the road, um, give thanks, right? You make it to church on time and you see your friends here and everybody's smiling, give thanks. There's so much we can give thanks for. Actively think about your blessings, and how you can thank God. Actively think about it. I'm not going to digress. I've got so much to cover this morning, but, you know, you can many of us have read those stories about people who endured prison camps, prison camps and the wars. And even sometimes those prisoners would find ways to give thanks for, you know, just the little, little things and then help them get through those trials. In everything, give thanks. Active thinking, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is his will. This is his will. This is an instruction to give thanks, to be thankful. Number seven, key number seven, claim God's promises. Let's turn to uh, Philippians chapter four, Philippians 419, Philippians 419, another familiar verse. Claim God's promises. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God will supply all your need. David said he's been young, he's been old, but he hasn't seen the righteous starve. Christ tells us to pray for our daily bread. God will supply your needs. He may not make you a millionaire, but he will supply your needs and give Him thanks for that and claim those promises. Claim those promises. If you're keeping God's law, if you pray every day, if you don't compromise on the Sabbath and holy days, then you can claim this promise that God will provide for your needs. None of us are perfect, but there's many scriptures where God promises to take care of us, and he will. Okay, that's key number one. We should be thankful that God wants us to have peace of mind. Peace of mind. Number two, we should be thankful for God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So profound. So profound. Mr. Armstrong often reminded us that you cannot understand Bible prophecy and what's happening in the world without understanding the identity of Jacob. And there are those who used to be among us years ago who are turning away from that. Uh, It's not politically correct to talk about God. It's not politically correct to acknowledge that God delivered England out of war and America out of 
war and that God blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. We're going to talk about that a little bit. It's not that Ephraim and Manasseh or Abraham were inherently better. You all understand that. But Abraham was faithful and God made a covenant promise with Abraham. We'll go through that. And we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is a fundamental truth, brethren. Do not allow yourself to become the victim of political correctness or of the lack of education in high school where people no longer understand uh, their history and why America became great and why the British Empire became great. And it's, it's this uh, becomes this uncomfortable thing to acknowledge God. We're going to talk about Dunkirk later. I, Dunkirk made me so upset, that movie. Number one, the editing was bad. I just didn't like the editing, but that's a technical thing. I thought the music track was good, uh, the background music. They did not acknowledge God. It's not politically correct to acknowledge God. And that's just a shame. You cannot understand what's happening on the world scene if you do not understand this key truth. Genesis chapter um, 12. Just, we have very little time. Verses 1 and 2 and 3. Genesis 12. Here we have one of the uh, first times that God is making a, a promise to Abram. And the eternal, verse 1, says to Abram, this is before his name was changed, uh, you know the account, get out of your country from your family's house, from your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. From the beginning, God decreed that he would make Abraham's descendants a great people. We're going to study this quickly today. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And these are largely in time promises right here. That, that nations who cooperated with modern Jacob would be blessed. And nations that did not cooperate with modern Jacob would not be blessed, would be cursed. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. A little bit of a dual meaning here, because uh, secondarily, most importantly, but secondarily in this passage, it does refer to the Messiah, the seed. But primarily, this is about the covenant blessings physically upon Abraham's descendants. And that the nations that come from Abraham would become a a blessing to the world. We don't have time to go through all of this, but let's turn a few chapters over to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. Now, the church of God, back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, had lost sight of this. You read the writings, you read the sermon notes. Um, and they had lost sight of this. They, they did not have this understanding. God revealed this very strongly to Mr. Armstrong. And it, 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 it opens up Bible prophecy for us. Doesn't mean that we in the United States are somehow better. As a matter of fact, in the United States, in general, as we know, they're kind of worse, right? Which countries are pushing LGBT? It's Jacob. You try pulling that off in Russia. Right. Putin will ride up, you know, he's always depicted with a shirt off on a, you know, motorcycle or something manly. But he'll, uh, you know, he'll correct that. Right. <laughs> Which nations are are practicing more abominations? It's, it's Jacob's descendants. So this is not that we're better, but God fulfilled his covenant blessing, his covenant promise with Abraham's descendants. And we see in Genesis chapter 28, verse three. <clears throat> Uh, this is Isaac blessing Jacob. This is Isaac blessing Jacob. So that birthright blessing is being passed down. 
And notice the language, may God Almighty, God Almighty, El Shaddai, God the most powerful, God the most powerful, El Shaddai, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants. And it continues. So we see that covenant promise going from Abraham to Isaac. We know that there was some national strength anciently, but let's turn to Leviticus chapter 26. We know that ancient Israel and Judah became kingdoms and they had some prosperity. But brethren, was that were those promises fulfilled back in ancient times? Did did anciently the little tiny kingdom of Israel For as much as we respect David and Solomon or Hezekiah, were they world ruling powers anciently? Look up your history. Were they world ruling powers? Who were the world ruling powers? The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, little tiny Israel is very important to us. When did they possess the gates of their enemies anciently? When did their territory expand around the globe anciently? It did not. Why was that? Leviticus chapter 26. So many truths that we can be thankful for. We're thankful for God's church teaching us these things. None of this is anything new. We've written about these uh, understandings for years. Genesis, uh, so Leviticus 26, we have the 2520 year prophecy, which I will uh, talk about briefly. Let's read that. Genesis, I'm sorry, Leviticus 26, verse 18. So the first part of Leviticus 26, we have uh, God instructing Israel to not serve idols and to walk in his statutes. You see verse 3, to keep his commandments. And if Israel would do that, they'd be blessed. And we know that very often uh, Israel fell away, did not keep God's law anciently. We come down here to around verse 18 and well, verse 17 sort of uh, says verses 15, 16, 17 say, but if you despise my statutes, then there will be cursings. So we come down to verse 18 and God reveals that if Israel as a nation turns away from him, really sets their face against him, becomes recalcitrant, if they are unrepentant, then God would punish them seven times more for their sins and break the pride of their power. And then God gets into some descriptive language here, making the heavens like iron, the earth like bronze. The strength of your strength shall be spent in vain. The land will not yield its produce and so forth. God's talking about if there's national disobedience, there would come a time of of national uh, cursing. And then verse 21, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, then he would bring seven times intensity. We've often explained this and understood this in verse 21 as seven times in intensity. Verse 24 repeats that seven an intensification. Now, we often refer to this as the twenty five hundred and twenty year prophecy in church literature. And so I need to move quickly through this point and give you some some keys to understanding this prophecy, because what God is explaining here, most of you understand this, is that ancient Israel would 
have a delay in receiving the blessings, the ultimate physical blessings that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was going to be a delay nationally. He was going to withhold those blessings. How is it that we can understand that? Well, in Bible prophecy, God often uses day to refer to a year of 30-day months. Prophetically, God uses 30-day months uh, when he's giving us a prophetic month. Where can we see that for our notes? We'll turn to a couple scriptures. Let's not turn to Daniel 4, but you can jot down Daniel 4. Remember in Daniel 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was punished seven times? Remember Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar was punished seven times, and that was seven years? So we see the Bible interprets the Bible. A time can represent a year. Let's turn to Revelation chapter um, 11. Revelation chapter 11. So in Scripture, a day can refer to a year. A time can refer to a year. A prophetic month is 30 days. And you can prove this yourself from Scripture. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Now, we're not going to get into all of the end time events here, but what you have here in Revelation 11, uh, verse 2, is you have 42 months being equated with 1260 days. Uh, but leave the court, leave out the court which is outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. For 42 months, we see 42 months. Verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. So you could, it's easy math. It's, it's very easy when God reveals this to you, opens your mind to understand it, the math is pretty straightforward. Uh, we see that God's prophetic months are 30-day months. Here we see uh, 1,260 Days uh, equaling 42 months. You can turn across the page to Revelation 12, uh, verse 6. Revelation 12, verse 6. Here you have the woman uh, fleeing into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her that they should feed her 1,260 days. Here this refers to years. This verse is years during the Dark Ages. You can drop down a few verses to verse 14. Verse 14, we have that famous passage regarding the end time. Uh, which refers to the time during the Great Tribulation when hopefully we are in a place of protection. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 14. We, uh, let's begin in verse 13. Uh, the, woman, the, the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, time, a time times and half a time. So that is three and a half years. In prophetic language, years, times, days are often interchangeable. <clears throat> I won't turn to it, but you could jot down one more. There's, there's many other ways you can prove this. Ezekiel chapter 4. Remember in Ezekiel, uh, when God told Ezekiel to lay on his side a day for a year for the punishment of Israel and Judah? In Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. So, what does this have to do with God's covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What does this have to do with that? God promised that 
Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nations, that they would have great abundance. When did Israel go into captivity? If you're taking notes, when did they go into captivity? 721 B.C. That's provable secularly. They went into captivity 721 B.C. When did Judah go into captivity? Judah went into captivity over 100 years later, and they went into captivity in waves under Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's a key for understanding Bible prophecy, by the way. Whenever in the Old Testament God talks about Israel and Judah stumbling together, they did not stumble together historically. Understood? They'll stumble together in the future. They did not stumble together historically. So Israel went into captivity in 721. So how can we understand Leviticus 28, I'm sorry, 26, verses 18, 19, 20, and so forth, where God says he'll punish Israel seven times more for their sins? We understand this as God withholding the physical blessings from Abraham's descendants for 2,520 years. How do you do the math? Very simple. Israel went into captivity 721. Write that down. Seven times. Seven times. How do you do? What, what does seven times mean? That is seven prophetic years. Remember how we said a time can mean a year. If a year prophetically is 30 day months, then a prophetic year is 360 days. A prophetic year is 360 days. Seven times. Seven times 360. What do you get? Seven times 360. You get 2,520. Israel went into captivity in 721 B.C. Move forward 2,520 years. You arrive at 1,800. Account for year zero. 1,800, 1,801, 1,802 is when God's... He then allowed the blessings to be pour, begin to be poured out on Ephraim and Manasseh. Dr. Meredith has written about this. Mr. Armstrong wrote about this. Mr. Weston has talked about this. I'd like to read from the article, from Dr. Meredith's article, A Vital Key to End Time Prophecy. It is a vital key, brethren. Here's what Dr. Meredith wrote. Beginning from 721 B.C., when Israel first went into captivity, this seven times extension of its punishment would run for 2,520 years until 1800 A.D., when indeed the U.S. and the British Empire began their rapid rise to world dominance. God fulfilled his promise to bless Israel. <clears throat> he also delayed it according to his promised punishment. Brethren, how thankful we are to live in the age, although it's at the end of this time, it's at the end of the age, but how thankful we are to live at this time, experiencing the blessings that God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why does the United States have this beautiful territory, the state of Hawaii? Because of Abraham's obedience. Why are you here? Why are you wearing nice clothes? Why are you not working 15, 16 hours a day in Indonesia? Why are you not running for your life in Somalia? Because of Abraham's obedience. Because God is El Shaddai. Brethren, we are so blessed. There's so much to be thankful for. And when you understand that, you understand how much God loved Israel and still loves Israel. And then you understand how much Israel profanes God's law, his Sabbath. How much Israel just puts their nose, their thumb in his face and turns toward all this disgusting stuff. 
And it's not just LGBT. It's all the horror movies. It's the drugs. Israel is not a pure wife to God. You hopefully are. But modern Jacob is not. They're insulting their creator. They're insulting El Shaddai. No other nation, no other people in the history of the world has risen to the prominence that the British and American empires have. Brethren, do you recall, you've heard this before, but do you recall that around the 1800s and going into the 1800s, Great Britain controlled an empire that covered more than a fourth of the landmass of the entire earth. More than a fourth. More than a quarter of the entire earth. Britain ruled 458 million people when the population of the entire earth was only about 1.8 billion. 458 million when the entire population of the earth was about 1.8 billion. Britain ruled all of Canada. Egypt. Australia. New Zealand. How did that come to pass? Hong Kong, Iraq, South Africa, Sudan, Nigeria. We could continue. No other people have received the blessings that God gave to the descendants of Israel. No other nation fulfills these promises. Not because of their greatness but because of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants. Because God is El Shaddai. We're thankful, point two, for God's covenant promise to Abraham. We're thankful for God fulfilling his promise to Abraham's descendants. It's not very politically correct, but we're thankful for it. Are you thankful for it? If you're not thankful for it, imagine what life would be like in Somalia, Syria, eastern Ukraine, We're very thankful. Key number three. We're thankful for God's law. We are thankful for God's law. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter four. Deuteronomy four. And verse one. Deuteronomy four, verse one. We are thankful for the Ten Commandments, brethren. They're a hedge that protects us. We're thankful for the holy days. We're thankful for the statutes and ordinances which show God's love and God's care and God's mind. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God blessed Israel with his law. God's law is a blessing. God blessed Israel by giving them his law. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. God taught them his mind. God is teaching us his mind. That you may live. Not that you may suffer. Not that it may be hard on you, but that you may live. And go in and possess the land which the eternal God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you. You know, as a quick side note, um, uh, sometimes we'll talk to people that get into Messianic Judaism or Orthodox Judaism, right? And you've got 
all these additional writings. All these additional writings. And I have very many friends that are, I used to especially more when I, before I was hired into the ministry, I worked with some, some wonderful Jews. And they will put the Talmud sometimes above the Torah. And they'll know the Talmud better than the Torah. Do not, brethren, become you know, tempted by that. That's not better. It's not better. God says, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. God did not need 614 more uh, explanations regarding how to observe the Sabbath. You should not add to it that you may keep the commandments of the eternal your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did, what the eternal did at Bel Pur. For the eternal your God has destroyed from among you all the men. Remember that account in Numbers 25? When uh, Israel committed idolatry and harlotry, and I think, I'm not looking at it now, but I think there were 24,000 that were killed by a plague. And if I recall correctly, they, the Levites had to hang people as well. I'm not looking at the, the passage right now. So God says, don't, don't forget about that. Don't go after paganism. Love my law. My law is so that you can live. Verse, uh, verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the eternal my God commanded me, that you should not, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. Brethren, we are careful to observe God's law. We're careful. You are going to keep this high day, this Sabbath holy today. This high day, this Sabbath ends at sunset tonight. Doesn't end after the morning service. Doesn't end after the afternoon service. It ends at sunset tonight. We will be careful to observe God's law. For this is your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples. You become that peculiar people that we've heard about earlier, to, earlier during the feast. And they will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God wanted Israel to be a model nation. Israel failed, but you are a model nation. You are a model people. We are a model people because we're careful to observe God's laws. We love God's laws. We know they're a blessing to us. Uh, verse 7, what, people would say, what great nation is there that, that, God has, so, uh, that has God so near to it, uh, etc. Verse 8, what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments? Keep them diligently. Brethren, love God's law. Be thankful for God's law. Meditate on God's law. God's law protects you. I'd like to turn to Job. Job chapter 1. God's law protects you. Job chapter 1. Very quick uh, comment here. And this is, um, these are the words of uh, Satan right here, right? That they're recorded for our understanding. this, This comment here. And Satan was frustrated. He wanted to bother Job in Job's household. He was frustrated. He wanted to get at Job's family. He wants to get at you and your family. We, you know that. We know that. Satan's a roaring lion. He's a terrifying enemy. And Satan exposes something here. It's true what he exposes. He says, I can't get to Job. You've made a hedge around him. What was that hedge? Well, God's protection, but Job was righteous. 
Job was righteous. He had a little bit of pride, but he was righteous and he kept God's law. He did not go after the Baals or the Ashtaroths. He did not pass his children through the fire. He did not go get tattoos to pagan deities. Job kept God's law, laws. And so God put a hedge around him. God puts a hedge around you. I, I know you're thankful. I'm thankful for that. Be very thankful for that, brethren. We're going to stand out even more as the years go by. Now, I'm not saying that God will protect you from every flat tire and every tree that falls through your garage or whatever, right? But you're a peculiar, special people. And God loves you, but God loves it when you love his law. Be thankful for God's law. It's a hedge. It's a hedge. Let's turn to John chapter 14. John 14. On the night that Christ was going to be betrayed and endure just that terrible beating and mocking and, you know, false trial and the scourging and eventually be crucified. What instruction did he give to his disciples? I gave them a lot of different instruction during this time, but I want to focus real quickly on John 14, verse 15. John 14. Uh, verse 15, if you love me, this is, this is your Savior, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Who gave the law anciently? Christ. We're going to look at that later. Who gave the law? Christ. Jesus. Jesus gave the law. He's El Shaddai. He's the eternal. <clears throat> Over in verse 21. Over in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself or reveal myself or make myself known to him. You want to have better doctrinal understanding? You want to have better prophetic understanding? Humble yourself before God's law. Humble yourself before God's law. Christ will reveal himself to you more. His way of life, you know, better understanding of prophecy. I'm not saying you're going to have new truth. <laughs> the more you humble yourself before God's law, the more you do your Bible study, the more you work on yourself, the more you work on obedience for yourself, the more you will understand the mind of God and the more Christ will bless you with understanding of, of Scripture in general. So many Scriptures we could turn to. I'm not going to turn to some of these other ones, but you know Isaiah 66, verse 2. On this one, uh, does God look favorably? Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 2. He looks favorably on one who is humble and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at his word. Makes me think of Moses. Makes me think of, of I won't start naming names of ministers, but we, we all know many you know, many people, not just ministers, but many of you, who I know you do your prayer and your Bible study, and you put it first every day, and you do your Bible study. You do your Bible study on the airplane. Your Bible's open. People look at you and say, that's peculiar. You do your Bible study. God loves that. That's what Jesus Christ says. <clears throat> okay, so point number three, we're thankful for God's law. We can be thankful for that 
Give God thanks for it. Tell him we're thankful for it. Let's move on. Point number four. We're thankful for God's intervention in world affairs. And I've touched on this earlier, but I want to uh, turn to a couple quick scriptures, and then I'll tell you a few stories, let you take a break from turning in scripture. But let's turn to Daniel 2 first, Daniel chapter 2. We are thankful for God's intervention in world affairs. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. Just a principle that I'd like to bring up here. Daniel 2:21. It is God who raises up kings. It is God who brings nations, you know, up and brings them down. Daniel 2 verse 21. So Daniel answered uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Verse 21, For he changes the times and the seasons, and he removes kings and raises up kings. God is in charge. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and God is all-powerful. He is El Shaddai. God gives wisdom to the wise. That's hopefully us. And knowledge to those who have understanding. Go through Proverbs. Understanding is a fear of the Lord. God raises up kings. God raises up empires. There are huge historic events, brethren, that we're aware of. Like the Exodus, right? Where God caused his will to come to pass and brought Israel out of captivity. They were not a mighty nation. They were enslaved. And he brought them out of captivity. Why? He was fulfilling his desire. He was fulfilling his desire to make Israel a nation. Because he had promised that to Abraham. And that promise went down through Isaac and Jacob. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 48 before I tell you some stories. Genesis 48. God is all-powerful, brethren. We can be very thankful for that. We should be encouraged by that. We don't need to fear society. We don't need to fear the government. We don't need to fear anything of this earth. God is all-powerful. God raises up nations. Genesis chapter 48. We have a continuation here of the account of the birthright blessings being passed down uh, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, then to Joseph, then to Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis 48 and verse 13. Genesis 48, verse 13. This is breaking into the account. So Joseph uh, brought his sons before Israel. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh with his left hand, toward Israel's right hand. And brought them near to him. So Ephraim was the younger. And uh, Joseph wanted Manasseh, the older, uh, sorry, Ephraim was the younger, right, I was right, and he wanted Manasseh, who was the older, to receive the the greater blessing. That's how Joseph brought the boys before Israel. And you know the account, what actually happened. Ephraim, the younger, ended up receiving the greater blessing. His descendants would become a multitude of nations. Let's read through the account. Genesis 48, verse 13. Joseph took them both, brought the boys before their father. Verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on Ephraim, the younger. The better blessing was put on Ephraim, who was the younger. 
and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph first. Israel blessed Joseph first. Very important language here. Israel said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my long life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them. So that covenant is going down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who became Israel, and then to the lads, my name. To Ephraim and Manasseh. The other Israelitish nations have received blessings as well. Reuben, Dan, Gad, Daphtali, Asher, and so forth. But Israel's name was placed on Ephraim and Manasseh. The name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Notice this. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This was not fulfilled anciently. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took hold of his father's hand and moved it, uh, remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Then Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on him. But his father refused and said, I know, I know he also shall become a people. Speaking of Manasseh, who became the United States, a people, a nation, a nation, a powerful nation with Israel's name on them, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, Ephraim, his younger brother would be greater and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. This was fulfilled by no other family, no other nation than the British people, none other than the British people. Did God cause his will to come to pass? You know, Mr. Weston on the Sabbath read from a Dennis Prager uh, video, and he was writing uh, about how the Western and United States people are not taught their history. Remember those comments? How we're not taught our history. They don't know their history. He commented, Mr. Weston, that Ephraim and Manasseh do not know who they are. It's, it's a tragedy. Israel's lost its identity. Three quick stories where God intervened for Ephraim. I mentioned Dunkirk. Dunkirk. An awesome event. Dr. Meredith would often talk about it. I'll be brief. The miracle of Dunkirk. How many troops were saved? How many soldiers were saved? 193,000 British. 145,000 Reubenites. Coincidence? Ephraim and Reuben, saved from the shores of Europe, from annihilation by the Nazis. If they had been killed, and if God hadn't intervened, you know, God was going to cause, uh, you know, God would not have let this happen. But if they had been killed and God let things run their course, the United States would have fallen. Nazi tyranny. The evacuation occurred from May 26 uh, to June 4, 1940. <clears throat> it was called in its time the miracle of the calm seas. Did you hear that in the movie? Was it called the miracle of the calm seas? Did you hear in the movie about King George V's radio broadcast 
where he called for a national day of prayer on Sunday, May the 26th, when 800 little vessels went out to rescue those men. Did you hear about the national day of prayer in the movie? Did you see in the movie that the entire nation was moved to prayer, to daily prayer? Did you see the photographs that are still available from the newspapers of the day showing churches and synagogues packed inside and outside? Hundreds of old grandfathers and grandmothers and young kids that were praying daily. The Daily Sketch, one of the biggest newspapers of the time, said regarding the prayer and the the praying that nothing like this has ever happened before. But Israel doesn't remember that. We don't give glory to God now in 2018. Winston Churchill said of those who prayed, Winston Churchill said how thankful we are that God had his company of hidden intercessors, hidden intercessors, those who prayed, whose lives were on the altar day after day and stood in the gap for the deliverance of Britain. After the evacuation, there was a national day of thanksgiving declared for June the 9th. And according to the Daily Telegraph, again, major paper, it said following, the prayers of the nation were answered. The God of hosts, not some abstract God, the God of hosts, Himself, capital H, capital H in the newspaper, not little h, the God of hosts, appointed, supported the valiant men of the British Expeditionary Force. Winston Churchill called it a miracle of deliverance. But in 2018, this is not politically correct. Did you see that in the movie? Israel's turned their back on God. Let's go back further to another pivotal point where God intervened. In world affairs. The Spanish Armada. I'll make this brief. 1588. 1588. Philip II of Spain sends 130 ships to invade England. And return Queen Elizabeth I and all of England back to the mother. To the Catholic Church. You know the account. You've heard us talk about it in the church before. God sent a terrible storm that destroyed a third of that armada. Now, the English Channel is struck by storms often, but when you read the account, the way God worked it out, they became trapped and they became, their fleet was uh, destroyed. A third of their ships were destroyed. The Spanish Armada returned to Spain. Philip II was so upset. He wanted to turn the, you know, England, who was going Protestant, right? Left the mother church. He wanted to return them back to the Catholic faith, faith so much. It was an obsession of his. But Spain was never able to mount an attack on England again during that time. This Protestant Reformation continued. Bibles were printed. The church of God in England was able to grow. It's a wonderful story. Read Ivor Fletcher's book. Not every single thing there. There's a couple things in there that you know are speculation. But read that book. Very interesting what, what God did uh, in England during that time. Let's turn to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. We're thankful for God's intervention in world affairs. Many of these uh, accounts are, are known, and there are many that are not known. <clears throat> but God is almighty. Job chapter 12, verse 23. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. 
That is who we worship. We don't have time to turn to it, but Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 tell us that God declares the end from the beginning. He causes his will to come to pass. We are thankful that we worship the Almighty and that he causes his will to come to pass. And he has intervened in world affairs and he will intervene in the future in world affairs. Number five, we're thankful for God's church. We're thankful for God's church. We're thankful that we are family. Let's turn to John chapter 17. John 17, verse 20. We are thankful for God's church. We are thankful that we are family. John 17, verse 20. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe. And this is speaking of those that would come after. This includes you and me. He prayed for those who would come later, who, who would believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. Brethren, you're familiar with this passage. But we are family. We are family. We are one. And we should be so very thankful for that. That we are family. We love each other. It doesn't matter if we're blood family. We are family. We're thankful for the ministry. This is still under point five, the church. We're thankful for the ministry. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 4 verse 11 and 12. So he came, he gave uh, himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There are different roles, there are, are different uh, ordained, appointed uh, roles uh, in the church. These are not just functions. Uh, that's something that some other groups will start to talk about. These are just functions. No, they're not just functions. They are functions, but they are appointed roles. What is the purpose? What is the purpose? What is that lie? What is the lie that Satan pushes out there? What is the lie Satan pushes? The lie Satan pushes is that the, the, the purpose is to oppress and make your life hard. Well, I, I really thank Mr. Fall and Mr. Jocks and Mr. Jones for making my life really hard at the feast this year. It was rough. Boy, this was a hard feast. I mean, all the good food and all the good sermons and sermonettes and the music and the fellowship. Well, you know, the ministry are here to serve. And we're here to lead and correct and teach, but we're here to serve for the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. Brethren, our goal... Our hope is that we all make it into the kingdom together as family. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your prayers. The zealous prayers. I was talking to somebody before church. He said, Mr. Selka, I knew you had the sermon and I fasted for you. I fasted last night when I went to sleep and I fasted all night until I woke up this morning. I said, thank you. That is zeal. We're thankful for the work. Won't turn to it, but Matthew twenty four fourteen, The work that the church does. That the gospel will be preached to all the world. We're thankful for the work. So we're th- under the category of the church. We're family, ministry, and the work. Brethren, be thankful for even the little things. You know, we, we went on a little TV station up in uh, Seattle. 
just a few weeks ago, I, I think it started airing last weekend. Mr. Weston, he always remembers exactly when they start to air. I don't remember. But uh, we, we went on a new station in Seattle. And it's a little station, but we're, I'm, it's so exciting. That's great. We went on a new station in San Antonio. It's a late night time, but that's great. Would love to see God do more of a work in San Antonio. I grew up there and we had an AM and a PM church. We had over 900 people in the AM and 900 people in the PM. I would love to see a great work done in San Antonio. I'm thankful for what we're doing on you know, the internet. I'm thankful for being on CNN in the Philippines. Isn't that awesome? Have you been remembering to pray about that? We're on CNN in the Philippines. I'm thankful for this new Portuguese website that we launched, the fifth or sixth most uh, spoken language in the world. I'm thankful for the fact that we've got translators in the church who are translating the telecast into Spanish and German and French and uh, Afrikaans and Russian and Ukraine. I got somebody from the Ukraine who sent me a note on Facebook, uh, the church's Facebook page, uh, two nights ago. I said, what do you have in Ukraine? And I said, not, so I used Google Translate. I said, not a lot, sorry, but we have some things. And hope you're, you know, where are you from? And here's the link to our, our Ukrainian uh, translated uh, tele, telecast. That's awesome. Are you thankful for those, those doors God is opening? Uh, I am, I know you are. <clears throat> Mr. Weston wrote about this in the coworker letter that just came out right before the feast. He reminded us of the importance of continuing to hold fast to true doctrine and being zealous for the work. And he explained, as we've talked about many times, that when you're zealous for the work, you're, you're showing love, outgoing love, for your brothers and sisters out there in the world. You're showing love for them. Here's what he wrote. This is the co-worker letter that just came out. We desire, we desire... It's not just an obligation. We desire to warn our friends, neighbors, and the whole world where our world is heading. We also give a sure hope that something better is in the future. Our creator does care. So many people nowadays, we heard in the offertory, they don't think that God cares. Only he can bring about world peace. Sorry, uh, to usher in world peace. A world of peace and prosperity for all. Only he can bring that about. This hope and warning goes out through television, radio, internet, print media. And this is possible because of your heartfelt prayers and financial support. Thank you for your steadfast concern for your fellow man. Brethren, we're family. We're doing the work together. We're thankful for God's truth. Point six. We're thankful for the truth. We're thankful for the truth. Let's not turn to it, but 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, says that the church is the bulwark of the truth. Brethren, I am very thankful, and I know you are, for the truth. The church is the bulwark of the truth. You know, if occasionally you come to a minister and, and you've got some idea, and, and, and the minister's a little bit, you know, uh, sort of reserved, it's because we're the bulwark of the truth. We study, and you study, and we look at things, and God has revealed some nuances to us, right? God revealed primarily through Mr. Ames about, you know, standing before God's throne at the wedding. So there's some things we learn and, and we, you know, improve on. But uh, the church is the bulwark of the truth. Opening night, Mr. Weston. So these, these are some examples of the truth we're thankful for. Opening night message. He said that we understand why we're here because we understand that the feast represents the millennium, a time of restoration of all things. Now, that's fundamental, I know, but that's, that's, why, that's why we're here. 
We're thankful for that understanding. Day one, Mr. Jocks talked about uh, the details regarding having a better understanding of what it means to be kings and priests. That's awesome. That's awesome to become kings and priests and we have functions and purpose. Day one, I talked about the healing waters that will really go out from Jerusalem and the world will need it. There will not be an ounce of drinkable water on the planet. And when Christ returns to the Mount of Olives and splits it in true and those healing waters come out from under the temple, do you think there will be doubt as to who is God and where is God and where is life coming from? We're thankful for that understanding. Mr. Oswald, my friend Mr. Oswald, we're thankful for the good news of the literal kingdom of God. He really brought it to life in that split sermon. Going through all these, just so many scriptures about how real the millennium will be on day three. Mr. Clore on day three. Seven ways that love will change the world. We're thankful for understanding how love will change the world. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for education, family, marriage. Oh, that was awesome. Mr. Fall on day four. Understanding that we have to fight now for the family of the future. What a blessing to understand those principles that he went through that help us and equip us to fight now. Equipping the saints is what he was doing. Equipping us now to fight now for a better family now and for the future. We had the behind the work film. Those youth, what they said, I hope that they mean it. Yes, I know not all of those youth are still in the church. We know that. We know that. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you left the church and came back? There's some here that I baptized. I won't look at you. That left the church and came back. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And now they're they're wonderful, wonderful members that, that you know. Mr. Jock's Bible study, embracing the way. It's a way of life. How thankful we are to know that this is a way of life. Mr. Weston, talking about God's laws, His holy days, the truth. You know, God's law is paramount. Why do we keep the holy days? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Mr. Dever, we're thankful for understanding how precious is marriage and how humility is so critical in a marriage relationship. And the world is suffering from adultery and and divorce. And we're so thankful that God has sanctified marriage and he has given us the ability to change our hearts. I knew Mr. Dever as a teenager. I love him. He's always been a friend of mine. But he, you know, he's a big guy and, you know, he had to, he had to become a humble guy, right? Mr. Lyons painted that picture of who will reign in the kingdom. And a lot of the prophetic understanding he touched on. <clears throat> We're thankful for the truth. That's some of the truth we learned today. Or we didn't learn, but we, it was taught to us and we, we thought about it and hopefully in, we're integrating it more into our lives. Okay, final point, and it's also, we're going to wrap up. I, I apologize, I'm going to go a couple minutes over. <clears throat> final point, we're thankful for the hope of Christ's return. We're thankful for the hope of Christ's return. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go a little over time. Let's turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. We're hopeful for the 
we're thankful for the hope of Christ's return. Isaiah 45, verse 18. This is a tremendous passage. Brethren, this passage, if you haven't studied it lately, this is an awesome passage. There is so much truth in this passage. Isaiah 48, verse 18. Hope that our Savior will return. For thus says the Eternal, the Eternal, the Word, Jesus Christ, who created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 18. This is the word spoken of in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and 3. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. This is not some pansy Jesus who is effeminate with long hair and has no power. This is the Almighty, El Shaddai, the Eternal, the Lord, Jehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh, however the pronunciation is, who created the heavens and the, who created the heavens. Who formed the earth and made it. Who has established it and did not create it in Tohu. Did not create it in Tohu. You know, the earth is much older than 6,000 years. Genesis 1 verse 2. That it became Tohu and Bohu. Became without form and void. Christ did not create it in Tohu. So I'm sorry for all those young earth people. He did not create it in Tohu. Who formed it to be inhabited. Even back millions of years ago. He formed it to be inhabited. By the lizards and insects and whatever lived. You know the dinosaurs. Way back when. I am the eternal. There is no other. I have not spoken in secret. The gospel is not. Delivered in secret. We have the Bible. God preserved it. We have the gospel going out to the world on television and radio. I have not spoken a secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. God preserved the Bible, scripture, the truth. I, the eternal, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. Now, this prophecy comes after the, uh, th- this is regarding after the tribulation. Assemble yourselves together. Um, they have no, now he's talking about those who practice uh, paganism here in verse 20. Uh, tell them, bring, verse 21, tell them, bring forth your cause. Yes, let them take counsel, counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who put the gospel in motion from ancient time? Who has told it from ancient time? The answer, verse 21, have not I the eternal? There is no other God besides me. This is who we worship, brethren. As it says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning. God put this plan in place. The holy days, his law, that the gospel will go out as a witness to the world. The meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we just celebrated. The meaning of the great last great day, which is its own feast. I am the... Eternal, There is no other God besides me, a just God and Savior. There is none besides me. Okay, final scripture, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. So we're thankful for the hope of Christ's return and the resurrection of the saints. We have a lot to be thankful for, brethren. John chapter 5, and we'll conclude. We don't marvel, brethren. We're not confused. 
We don't marvel. We are not confused. John chapter 5, verse 28. We understand this great plan that God has put into motion. John 5, verse 28. And so here, Christ is talking to us. And he says, do not marvel. Do not be confused. Do not be perplexed. For the hour is coming. And we look forward to this. This is yet future. The hour is coming. This is the hope we have in Christ's return. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And we look forward to our friends and family who have died in the faith. We look forward to seeing Dr. Meredith again. We look forward to seeing those who have died in the faith. Those who are righteous will be raised with us. Hopefully we'll be raised right after them uh, to glory. All in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good, hopefully that's us, to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. We're thankful for Christ's return. We'll hear more about this, and we'll hear more about the last great day in Mr. Weston's sermon this afternoon. But brethren, let us always, always be thankful.